Thank you for choosing this Dream Center podcast. Don't forget to subscribe for further updates. Just before Pastor Tony left for Malaysia, do you remember he left on the Sunday? We had it topsy-turvy and he, he ran out the back door. It was the Friday night before Pastor left and I had a dream which I know was from God. And I don't often get them, hardly ever. But when I, you know, you know when God speaks to you, you know, you know, you know, you know. And I knew it was a dream of God. And I want to just explain this dream in brief. Basically, what happened was we were all here and I can remember seeing certain faces. So you were all in my dream. And Dr. Jonathan was here, Dr. Jonathan in Malaysia, but he was here and he just ministered to the church. And I remember Pastor Tony being there. I don't remember obviously what was said. That wasn't the key element. And Dr. Jonathan left the building with Pastor Tony and a few others. And And for me, that was God saying, this dream is for this time period when Pastor Tony is away with Dr. Jonathan. So God very clearly marked the, the period of time this dream was for. And what happened then was it all went very sinister and it all went very heavy. It wasn't a nice dream. And some men appeared and they had boxes, sort of big cardboard boxes they were sort of displaying. And they came up to me and a few of others, and I, I can say I can remember exactly who that, I think that just signifies that it was us lot. And they, in the boxes, they had, um, well, what they said, basically, I'm, I'm jumping the gun, they appeared and they said, we have to fix the roof. Well, that sounds right for this place, doesn't it? <laughs> we have to fix the roof. And to do that, we've had to take the owls down from the roof. And I remember getting very, getting disturbed by this. And I felt anxious. And as did a few of us here, and we were like, no, you can't take the owls down. You can't take the owls down from the roof of the church. They have to stay up there. And these men were very adamant that, no, no, we've taken them down. And I woke up on that morning and I felt really uneasy. So what I did, and I said, I don't do this often. I don't often get this kind of a a way that God speaks to me. I felt the dream was so significant that I emailed Pastor Tony and I told him about the dream. And I felt very reassured when I got an email almost straight away back saying, don't worry, I've had a nudge from the Holy Spirit and I've written a letter to the church asking them to be uh, on guard whilst I'm away. So we all got that letter, didn't we? I, I made reference to it last week. He asked me to remind again. In the letter, he spoke about the owls as well. Uh, obviously, that wasn't from my dream. He'd obviously had that. So the Holy Spirit had, had tied the two together. And um, as that weekend continued, I continued to ask God, well, what was the significance? What exactly do we need to watch out for? What is it that we need to be on guard for during this time period whilst Pastor Tony is away? And God led me to the scripture, Zechariah 9, 8. Coincidentally, where we've found the scroll, it's nothing to do (laughs) with the scroll, um, but it's the same book, it's Zechariah 9, 8. And the scripture says this, it says, I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. So there's that whole element again of keeping watch. And marauding means to roam in search of things, to kill, to steal of people, to attack. And that is a real accurate description of the devil, is it not? We all know that that's, that's a basic description of the devil. In Job, the Lord said to Satan, you know, where have you been? And he says, I've been roaming throughout the earth. 
I've been looking, I've been going backwards and forwards looking for something. So he's a marauding force. And the specific characteristic of the devil, which was mentioned in that scripture that the Lord gave me in Zechariah, is oppression. It says, never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. And God very clearly said to me, watch out for the Jebusite spirit. And I can assure you that my face was that blank last week as well. And I said, Lord, I've heard the word Jebusite, but I don't really know anything about, you know, what they're at. And... Uh, God basically that over this past week has been unfolding some things to me and I now have a clear revelation of what he's saying to us as a church. So let's start at the beginning. Best place to start, isn't it? Now the name Jebusite then, I did a bit of homework, means thresher. And a thresher is an agricultural term. And what it is, it describes someone who beats the grain out of the husk. The husk being the outer shell that the grain grows in. And the verb to thresh means to tread down. It means to beat hard. It means to stomp upon. And the Jebusites were called threshers because this is what their trade was. You know, nowadays, all the threshing, it's all done in very clean factories with machines. But back then, the Jebusites would physically stomp on the grain or they'd have oxen walking up and down on the grain. And I don't think you'd get that past health and safety these days, but that's what they did back then. So what the Jebusites then did for a living was to remove the seed from the grain. And what the Jebusite spirit seeks to do on us is to tread on us, is to stomp on us, is to beat us down, to oppress us and to remove the seed from within us. And last week, we we remember that Paul spoke very poignantly about the physical seed that God had planted in Emma's womb, the physical seed Jacob. And he likened that seed to Zion. And he said, we need to protect this seed. We need to look after it. We need to water it, to feed it. We need to take responsibility for it. And we need to watch that seed grow within us. Yeah? As we birth Zion together then and protecting our seed, we'll then see the glory of God manifest. So this is what God's saying to us as a church right now. On two separate occasions in the last fortnight, I've been chatting to people, just having random conversations with a couple of people. And one person... Um, just said to me, I know that I hear from God. I know that I do. I know that he speaks to me, but I don't feel worthy enough to share it. On another occasion, a separate person said to me, I actually, I asked God, oh Lord, don't speak to me on a Sunday morning because I feel too scared to get up and share it. That is the Jebusite spirit at work within us. It is longing to tread those people down, to beat on them, to stomp on them and to stop that seed from growing and producing a fruit. Amen. And this is why, um, church, that we need to be really watchful. So we're going to have to learn a little bit about the Jebusites here to understand the nature, the exact nature of what it is we're guarding against. And uh, I can say I didn't really know anything about them. You don't find them in the New Testament. So I knew nothing about this this tribe. But basically, you find them in Genesis, right at the beginning. And we learn that they were a descendant of Canaan, who was one of the grandsons of Noah. Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with the story that Noah 
um, got drunk. He was in his tent. He was naked. And one of his sons, Ham, Ham, you'd call the son Ham. (laughs) One of his sons, Ham, um, went in his tent, saw him. And rather than thinking, oh, you know, there's my dad. He's in a bit of a bad way. He came straight out of the tent and broadcast to his other brothers, oh, come and look at dad. This is hilarious. And And he sort of made a bit of a mockery of his dad. So the other two brothers, what they did was they very respectfully, they went into the tent. They didn't look at the father and they laid a cloak over him and just waited while he sobered up. And uh, Noah was not happy when he found out what his son had done. And it says in Genesis 9.25, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Now, Canaan was Ham's son, as we've just said. So we learn that the Jebusites who came from Canaan were basically, they were a cursed lineage. Straight away from number one, they came from that cursed place. And as the Bible unfolds and as we learn more about them, we see that the Jebusite clan actually rose to become one of Israel's most powerful and deadly enemies. Okay, so it's uh, important that we know what they're about. There are three occasions in the Bible where we see God telling his people to overthrow the Jebusites. And I want to look at these encounters in detail And the first encounter, if we turn to Numbers 13. So in Numbers 13, now basically what's happened was the Jebusites have been, the tribe has been born out of that cursed lineage of Canaan and they're inhabiting the land that God has actually promised to the Israelites and Moses knew that they had to be overthrown. In the previous instruction we find in Deuteronomy, God actually said to Moses, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally." So Moses here knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was going to have to rise up and they were going to have to totally destroy the Jebusites. So here we find him in Numbers 13, okay? And what God's told Moses to do is to go and secretly check the Jebusites out so that he knows what he's dealing with. And at the instruction of the Lord, therefore, Moses gathered together some spies. And it says, reading from verse one, the Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. Skip into verse 17. So Moses sent them to explore Canaan and he said to them, go up through the Negev and onto the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak. Are they few or many? What kind of land do they live in? Is it good? Is it bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or are they fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile? Is it poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So the first point that I want to make in this first encounter with the Jebusites is we need to be aware of the nature of our enemy. We must be wise to what it is that could turn in our lives and potentially come and take us out. We cannot be naive of the pitfalls that might be laying in wait for us. 
You know, we go back to our first scripture in Zechariah 9 and it says we're called to guard against the marauding forces, those forces of evil that are continually out looking to cause trouble for us. And in 1 Peter, it says be controlled, be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a lion. It says here we need to be alert we need to be watchful, sober, we need to be vigilant, we need to have our eyes and our ears continually open in our life just to, just to be aware of what it is that could come and stop us in our tracks. It's really important for us then to sit down and take an honest look at ourselves, at our lives, at the people around us and consider the things that we may need to overthrow and defeat. You know, Moses knew that they needed to kick that tribe out and he sat down and he did a comprehensive look at what it was he was facing. We need to paint an accurate picture of the situation. You know, businesses do something called a SWOT analysis. I'm sure many people have heard of it. You've even done them for your business. And if you've not, basically SWOT stands for your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities and your threats. And what Moses was doing here, he was very wisely asking for that comprehensive SWOT analysis to be done. You know, the business, it puts them in a real position of strength. Because if they consider right at the beginning what the weaknesses and what the threats are, then they're more likely to avoid them as it goes along. We've got to think that what might seem harmless and what might seem insignificant now can grow and it can get bigger and it can potentially take us out. Two sayings that come to my mind are forearmed is forewarned and keep your friends close but keep your enemies closer be aware of that which can turn and can attack you there's a whole myriad of things you know I'm not going to put words in your mouth you know whether it's doubt fear um, laziness whatever there's a whole myriad of things that can stop that seed within us from growing my second point then in this first encounter let's read from verse 27 and here's what the spies had to say on their return they gave Moses this account. We went into the land which he sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who'd gone with him said, oh, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread amongst the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of a great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. Carrying on into chapter 14. That night, all of the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and we should go back to Egypt. Point two, 
Fix your eyes on God's perspective and not what you see in the natural. Take that supernatural stance and not that natural stance that we often flip straight back into doing. You know, these spies, they came back and they excitedly, they reported that the land they had seen was indeed brilliant. It was indeed flowing with milk and honey. They brought back that fruit. Um, Other translations say that luscious grapes and Moses tried them and they they recognised that it was everything they wanted. However, their desire to inhabit that land was not as great as their fear of the people living there. And after hearing the report of the spies, the whole company of people became dejected. They became despondent. They became heavy-hearted. They looked at the problem that they faced as totally insurmountable. We've already read in Deuteronomy that God had said, when the Lord, your God, brings you into the land, and when The Lord your God has delivered your enemies to you and you've defeated them. It was when, not if. And these are the chosen people of God speaking. It was a done deal. And yet they let the fear rise up. They let the seed be trampled down and stomped out of them. And that's how easy and how fast it can happen to us listening to a negative report, believing a wrong perspective, listening to the wrong voices, getting hold of the, of the wrong stuff, forgetting the promises of God that he's given to us. And despite being able to see the blessings of the land that you want to enter, despite being able to taste the fruit of what it would be like to be that person or, or do that thing, we would freely walk once more into slavery and oppression. If you can see where you want to be and you can taste the fruit, but you're too afraid to make the journey, well, then we are already in slavery. We have to praise God for Caleb, amen, who was willing to rise up and stand up and stand on the promises of God. Let's carry on. Verse uh, 33. The spies said, we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. I'm probably saying these wrong, by the way, but it's fine. (laughs) We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. You know, not only have they built the enemy up, apparently these Nephilim were um, giants like Goliath was a giant, you know, the, the Goliath that David slain, but they'd reduced their own stature to that of a grasshopper, an insignificant small creature that can easily be crushed and trodden upon. This is the chosen people of God speaking here. This is the elect of God lightening themselves to a grasshopper. You know, having the right perspective is critical. It's critical if we're going to conquer the enemy that's going to come and try and overthrow us and defeat us and take away the seed of everything that we are labouring for here at the Dream Centre. Amen. A really stark warning to us is found in verse 36. Is Be careful how we influence someone else's perspective. It says this. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men, who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land, were struck down and they died of a plague before the Lord. Being unfaithful in your own spirit is one thing, but polluting the spirit and taking away the hope from somebody else is another. Point three. Point three is how quickly and easily can we blame others and turn on them? 
Numbers 14, verse 2, says, All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Immediately, the people started pointing the finger at the leaders. They allowed resentment to grow. Um, bubble up in them and it's when our lives are taking a bit of a turn for the worst and when we allow oppression in that very often the first thing that we do is we start to grumble about our leaders do we not hey my hands up bitterness can grow up bitterness can bubble up it can take a hold and before you know it you're blaming God it says the people started asking why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword You know, all of a sudden things are looking hard and it becomes everybody else's fault and not your own. But it's it's us and us alone that is responsible for nurturing that seed. We can help one another, of course we can. We can encourage one another, we can guide one another. But at the end of the day, it is me that has to get on my knees daily and push and press for the things that God has put inside me. Not Pastor Tony, not my own husband, nobody can do it but me. I have to take full responsibility your know, pastor tells a story and I don't know the exact facts. You might know, Carol. <laughs> and uh, it happened many years ago and the person in question, I think it was even before we came, so 10 years plus, so I'm not embarrassing anyone, but uh, there was a lady and she was having some counselling sessions with him. And um, apparently at one point during the counselling session, pastor looks up and this woman had fallen asleep. I mean, would you dare? I know he rambles on sometimes, but would you dare fall asleep in the counselling? So what he did was he said, right, you know, we're not having any more of these sessions. Why am I giving my time and my energy when you can't even have the oomph to stay awake? But do you know what the truth of the matter is? That lady probably went away and maligned Pastor Tony and then blamed him for the continuation of all the problems. Yeah, that's, isn't that how us humans react? We'll have to ask him exactly about that one. (laughs) I just remember him telling me, I'm thinking, I've never fallen asleep ever, ever. (laughs) Okay, the second time that we meet the Jebusites. Now, the first time didn't go very well, did it? They got a bit scared, the Israelites, and the Jebusites remained exactly where they were, firmly in power. But the second time we meet them, we're now under the rule of Joshua. And Joshua has taken on the mantle after Moses has passed away. And let's, let's turn to Joshua chapter 3, verse 9. And the first thing that Joshua does in Joshua here is he reminds the people once more of the promises of God. He reminds the people what God had said right at the beginning of this thing to Moses. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivitites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. As soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and will stand in a heap. I'll skip down a little. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. So here again, we see God doing a miracle whereby he parts the waters. And this mirrors the time when right back at the beginning of the journey, when he uh, parted the Red Sea and the people were rescued from the clutches of Pharaoh, God is once again reminding them in a really, really obvious way that he is with them, 
that he has promised their victory and that he will certainly drive out before them the Jebusites. Now we don't have time this morning, but if you continue to read through Joshua, you'll see that one by one, each of these other tribes were taken out and defeated. Amen. However, we read in Joshua 15, 63. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. The Jebusite spirit will hang on to the bitter end. When everything else can get defeated in our life, it is that Jebusite spirit that will, that will be clinging on because it's powerful. And the one thing that it can do is shut us down. If we don't have seed, we can't grow. We can't produce. We lose our effectiveness. And that is why God is saying to us, this is one of the biggest battles that we are going to have to face within us. So what happened? What happened? Well, years passed and Joshua died. And although the people were left without a nominated leader, they still recognised under the rule of the judges that they needed to overthrow the Jebusites and they needed to gain total control of Jerusalem. And in the years that followed, the people did have much success in defeating all of the other tribes. But we read in Judges 1, 17, it says this. Then the men of Judah went with the Simonites, their fellow Israelites, and they attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon and Ekron, each city with its own territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove it from the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. They have failed once more to defeat the Jebusites. So we have to ask ourselves, thinking about our own battle, why, why was that? In this second encounter of the Jebusites, why again have they failed? Number one, the Jebusites possessed superior weapons. Verse 19, it reads, they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. And we heard earlier about the need to understand the nature of your enemy, the need to know exactly what you are facing. And to be pre-warned is to be pre-armed. And here the Israelites, they hadn't done their homework. They'd gone into battle, not sussing out what it was that the enemy had at their disposal. And that is why they didn't defeat them. You know, Second Chronicles 10 says to us that though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The Jebusite spirit wants to crush and trample down the hope that comes from within us and from the seed planted in us. And it will do that in the battlefield of our mind. 
We therefore have to use our spiritual weapons. Paul is urging us here to use them to take captive every thought, to shut every thought down. When you recognise it, recognise it as the nature of your enemy and shut it down. We have to know what our own weapons are. And I've written here, that's a whole other preach. It is. That's a whole six-part message. But for now, I will just remind you to just daily put on our armour. We have got so many weapons at our disposal. We've got the blood of Christ. We've got prayer. We've got praise. We've got the power of our testimony on Friday night. Amen. We've got uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We've got a whole arsenal of weapons at our disposal. We are not lacking in weapons. The second reason, therefore, for the failure of the Israelites to defeat the Jebusites was the people had violated the covenant that they had made with God. In Judges 2, we read that Joshua had just died. He'd just been buried. And reading from verse 11, it says, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt, they followed and they worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Reading to verse 19, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant that I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord has allowed these nations to remain. He did not drive them out by giving them into the hands of Joshua. We can't mess with God. We can't have our cake and eat it. We can't live like a scuffer all week, not giving one thought to God, not giving one iota to building the kingdom and then rock up here on a Sunday, hands in the air and expect all of heaven to open up to us. You know, God is good. Amen. God is amazing and his faithfulness and his grace gives us far, far, far more than we ever will deserve. But there are rules to this thing. And when we ourselves step out of the covenant, it becomes null and void, does it not? You know, it says here that they refuse to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. If this is resonating with us this morning, then, you know, don't delay don't delay, get back before God, confess it to him and step back into covenant with God and only then will we ever be victorious and defeat our enemy. So the second meeting with the Jebusites didn't go that well either, did it? They're not doing very well, these Israelites. Let's look at the third meeting. This is the third and the final meeting and it's found in the book of Samuel. It's 2 Samuel chapter 5 and tons and tons and tons has gone on. Um, since we last met the Jebusites. David is now king. Hooray. And David has re-established the covenant with God. And one of the first things that David does is in chapter five, verse six, it says this. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites. Woo! 
who lived there. And the Jebusite said to David, you're not getting here. Even the blind and the lame can warn you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. But David took up residence in the fortress and he called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Amen. So we find then that the Jebusites at the beginning of this scripture are firmly, firmly settled and quite comfortable, thank you, in Jerusalem. So much so that the city was actually referred to as the city of Jebus. Jebusite, I mean, how rude is that? Changing the name of Jerusalem for their own good. And David, he knew enough was enough. This tribe were not the people of God. This tribe were not the chosen people. And their presence in Jerusalem was infecting and affecting what God wanted to do there. History tells us that the Jebusites particularly, they weren't causing any harm. You know, they were getting on with their threshing. Um, They weren't rising up and fighting. But David knew that he could not compromise. So at last we see their defeat. And the first point I want to make about this uh, defeat of the Jebusites is number one. The Jebusites taunted David with the certainty that they would not be defeated. They said, you're not getting here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. And that is what our spiritual enemy will do. Our spiritual enemies will rise up and they will attempt to make us feel that conquering them is impossible. They will try and intimidate us. They will try and belittle us. They will take away the confidence that we have and they will try and force us back into slavery. I have fought this time and time and time again myself. Pastor Tony will tell you of all the times up in that office when I have faced a daunting situation and I have wanted to run away with my tail between my legs in the opposite direction. And it's by the grace of God, truly, that I am stood here this morning. It is. People say, oh, you look confident. Well, I don't feel it. (laughs) It's by the grace of God that I am stood up here. And uh, I even considered last week after that brilliant message of ringing Paul up and saying, hey, ring, ring, Paul. I really think your message needs a part two, mate. (laughs) Can you come and do it next week? And then I heard about the vomiting bug that some of the kids had. I had a bit of a daydream. Oh, imagine if I got the bug and I couldn't preach. Do you know what though? There's got to come an end. There's got to come an end. And Pastor Tony said to me, there's got to be a battle where one day you defeat this fear and intimidation once and for all. And praise God, I'm getting there. I am getting there. And... um, when Pastor Peter and Karen came, what they spoke over me was freedom and an end to intimidation. And they spoke that the shackles around my ankles would be gone and I would run freely. I remember it like it was yesterday, stood over there in the annex. It's now my responsibility to take that seed, to take what was said and to speak it over myself to declare it in my life, to prophesy it to myself, to stand on that promise of freedom and to watch that seed grow and grow and grow and enjoy the fruit that it brings. But if I was to listen to the taunt of the Jebusite, 
that would have been trampled down. That would have been beaten out of me already. I would have been oppressed already. The seed had been removed and it would have been game over. Somebody else would be stood here this morning. <laughs> we have to have a verse seven moment. Second Samuel chapter five, verse seven, never the less, nevertheless, yes, it might look bad. You know, the Jebusites, you might have a fortress that looks impenetrable. You might be laughing at us. You might think that we can't come and kick your boat and kick you out of our city. But nevertheless, it says David captured the fortress of Zion and defeated them. So whose report are we believing, church? We have to have, we have to create our own nevertheless moment by rising up. Amen? Second point. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel, but this account of defeating the Jebusite is also told in 1 Chronicles. So scoot over to 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and we read from verse 4. David and the Israelites marched to Jerusalem, that is Jabus, not for long. The Jebusites who lived there said to David, you will not get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. David had said, whoever leads the attack on the Jebusites will become commander in chief. Joab, son of Zeruah, went up first and so he received the command. David then took residence in the fortress and so it was called the city of David. He built the city around it from the terraces to the surrounding wall while Joab restored the rest of the city. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Point two then, when you rise up and you defeat your enemy, you gain a new stature in Christ. David promised whoever would lead the attack would become commander in chief. And so Joab, praise God, stepped up to the plate and did the job. And as we progress in our relationship with God, we must be seeking to continually rise in stature. Certain things cannot be done through us or by us unless we reach certain levels of stature. You can't lead others where you yourself haven't been, can you? And you can only rise in stature when you are willing to lose yourself and your reputation. Joab could have fallen flat on his face. All of history teaches us and taught him that these Jebusites were undefeatable, but he decided that regardless, he would give it a try. When we've got the stature that is given to us by God, not the status of man, but the stature by God, that is when other people sit up and take notice of you. That's when we can then start having an impact. We can start influence. Joab, he rose in position, he rose in stature and he became leader over many. He became a leader, someone who people look to, to take orders from, to get behind, to go with. He then could go and do things that he would never have had chance to do before. It says in verse eight, David built up the city from the terraces to the surrounding wall, but Joab restored the rest of the city. Do we want to build and restore the city this morning, church? Do we want to be in a position where we have authority given to us by God and a stature to be able to do that? When we have this stature, we can then go and take on the full assignment that God's given to us. Hebrews 5.12 says, by this time, you ought to be teachers but you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. 
We cannot remain at the level that we started at. We have to grow and mature and develop. And it's only by giving ourselves over to God, by rising up and defeating these enemies that we'll do that. MPOG, Man Up, Unleash, the Foundations course, they have all been designed with our maturing in mind. They have all been designed to help us move from one degree of glory to another and to rise in stature. We can't remain at that place of salvation. We have to step into living for God and move through the cross and do that. Only then are we going to make a difference for the kingdom, amen. Point three. Let's flip back over. I told you to keep your finger in it. Into 2 Samuel, verse 5. And point three is this. We will never, we will never, 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 never win the battle in the flesh. The battle has to be won in the spirit. Reading from verse 8 then. Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who were David's enemies. The only way that they could gain entrance into the fortress was to go up the water tunnels. This fortress was on the top of a really steep hill with valleys around each side. And because of that, they had to have a water system whereby it drained all the water out of the city and tipped it down the valley otherwise the city would be waterlogged so what they were going to have to do was go up these water tunnels and spring a surprise attack on the Jebusites and to do that they were going to get absolutely soaking wet if we want to conquer the Jebusite spirit we are going to have to get absolutely saturated in the cleansing waters of the Holy Spirit You know, if we think about that river in Ezekiel 47, we can't stand ankle deep. We can't remain knee deep. If we want to conquer and rise up, we have to close our eyes, hold our nose and jump in this river and submerge ourselves, become saturated with the spirit. It's only then can we conquer the things that are holding us back when we walk in complete communion with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to share something really personal now. I wasn't sure if I was going to. I'd included it in my notes, but it's got a star next to it. And and I wasn't sure if I was going to share this because it is personal. And in all honesty, I feel a little bit ashamed about it. Start coughing now. But I really feel it's going to help some people this morning. I'm really sensing in the spirit that it's going to help to set some people free this morning. And that's why I'm, I'm studying being transparent and uh, <clears throat> some time ago, in the near past, I developed a drinking problem, drinking alcohol. And what started off as a harmless glass of red wine on a Friday night, very quickly grew. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And without being dramatic, I really sensed that this was going to take me out. It was something that was going to take me out. And, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> I went through all the stuff when my mum was ill and I had some health worries of my own. And, and drinking became a bit of an emotional crutch. You know, that's, that's the story, isn't it? That's what happens. And I did that SWOT analysis over my life. I didn't do it officially, but I knew that this had become a weakness and I knew it had become a threat to me. And... Um, 
I've not made much notes on this bit. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail because you know what? I'm embarrassed about it. Even though there's a victory in it, I'm still a bit, it feels a bit grubby. But I will say that I knew I was disobeying God. I knew that I was in slavery. And despite me making umpteen pledges in the flesh to stop, I'd say the morning after the night before, I'm not doing that again. Oh, why am I doing this? What am I doing? You know, it's been so, I'm not going to drink again. I'm not doing it. I would find myself on the way to the shop for a bottle of wine. And I was avoiding the issue a bit with God. And even though I'd wanted to stop, I couldn't see a way out. And I became very reminiscent of the Israelites in Numbers 13 that we've read, where I was blaming everybody else. I was sort of like looking around and going, oh, I'm so stressed out. You know, my mum, my mum's healed of cancer, but there's other stuff going on and it's really hard and I'm carrying a lot of stuff and I'm, I'm busy and life's difficult and I justified it. And I, I blamed everyone, well, everything else around me rather than me taking responsibility for my bad choices. Amen. And when Pastor Peter came and spoke that word of freedom, I knew, I knew that God had done something. I knew it. I couldn't share it. You remember me stood up here trying to give a testimony about it. And I said, I don't really know. How can you share it when there's not been any fruit of it? You know, I don't drink anymore. How long has it been? One day. (laughs) Yeah. You, You know, so I didn't have a language for it. Um, but what I did when I got that word spoken over me in the annex, I took a hold of it. I took a hold of it in the spirit and I partnered with God. And God um, kept bringing Ephesians 6 to me, which says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, it's against the authorities, it's against the powers of the dark world and the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And I very quickly recognised I was in a spiritual battle. So what I did, I fought in the spirit. I saturated myself with his word. I saturated myself with his promises. And I got on my knees and I declared it over myself. I saturated myself and watched that seed grow and grow and grow. And I'm happy to say, I now stand here as a result of that freedom. Amen? Amen? And I feel great. I feel brilliant. And you know what the best thing is? It's now been three months. (laughs) And uh, I have no craving to use alcohol as an emotional crutch anymore. And the best thing was that I felt God place his hand on me and I felt him say, well done, you've conquered this and now it's time to move on to bigger stuff. And I felt myself rise in stature, yeah, because of this defeat. You know, as I said, I have not gone into a lot of detail. I've given you the PG and not the 18 this morning. (laughs) But if there's people in here that is suffering... And if there's people in here that are recognising that you're in slavery, not necessarily to alcohol, it could be. If you recognise that, please come and speak to me. You know, today, next week, ring me up, whatever. Because we said about Joab not being able to take the people where he himself hadn't been. Well, I've been there. I have been there. And through God, I am now the other side and I am walking in freedom. And I really sense that I can share. I'm confident I can share that freedom and help people get out of slavery this morning. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Final point. Point four. The place of your greatest conquest becomes the very place where God's greatest glory is revealed and established. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 18, it says this. 
On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up, and as the Lord had commanded through Gad, when Arana looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so that I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arana said to David, Let the lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are the threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arana gives all this to the king. Arana also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arana, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen, and he paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague of Israel was stopped. In this scripture, we are right at the place of the threshing floor. It's that place where the Jebusites stomped up and down on the, on the grain and removed the seed. That place where they tread up and down on it. And we're reading the exchange between David and this very grateful Jebusite whose life had been spared when they overtook the fortress. And they're talking about how much it's going to be to buy the place. And even though it was offered to him for free, David insisted on paying. And God would say to us this morning, church, that taking back the threshing floor is going to cost us. It's going to cost us everything. It's going to take everything we have. The seed that's been given to us is precious. It's of worth. It's of value. And it's going to take our time, our energy, our finances, our focus, our concentration. It is a sacrifice that we must pay. We can't expect to pay half price and receive the full measure. This thing is going to take everything we have individually and corporately. But we, we pay for it and let's just see what we get for our money. Second Chronicles chapter 3 verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, the place provided by David. The old threshing floor was always destined to become the very place that housed the Shekinah glory of God, the very place that the altar in the temple was built right on that threshing floor. God desires to manifest his glory amongst us. God desires to use us and be shown through us. And he is urging us, I sense urging us to protect what it is that we've been given and what we're birthing at the Dream Centre. To not let it be trodden down in our spirit, but for us to de defeat that oppressor that's going to try and come and take us out. Looking back at the points we've made then, be conscious and alert about your enemy. Look through God's supernatural perspective. Take responsibility for your own seed. Use the weapons that have been given to us. Don't violate the covenant that you've made with God. Rise up against intimidation. 
seek to grow in stature. Battle in the spirit and not the flesh and be prepared to give all we have. Then and only then, church, are we going to enter into desire and receive everything there. Let's stand to our feet. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information, go to www.thedreamcentre.co.uk.